Hello. Hello. Um, what noise was that? The <laughs> Oh, do you hear the wind, wind chimes? chimes? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's the wind chimes. <laughs> It's going to be a lovely ambiance in the back. I love it. <laughs> that should have been going on when you were recording your story the other uh, week. Oh, um, the, uh... <clears throat> the Twitter, Twitter one. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome back to Myths and Misfortunes. That's Rachel. I'm Grace. That is Grace. I am Rachel. So this this week we are both in the Before same. Before we actually get there, I have the um, addition to the last episode. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That uh, will. Yeah. When I wrote my story about the SSRing Medan last week, I or when I was reading it, I completely forgot like an, encha- an entire like paragraph. Hmm. Where in 1959, uh, the... I don't even write down who he was. Oh my god, I hate this. Um, The the, guy. Like a deputy CIA director Mm -hmm. uh, named C.H. Mark wrote a letter to an unknown person about the Orang Medan. And the letter says that he's written to this person before about mysterious ship disappearances and crews. And asks the person if they believe the Oring Medan is a case of the unknown. Even oh, for saying sure. for sure. Even saying that he felt as though the Oring Medan holds the answer to a lot of airplane accidents and unsolved Ooh. mysteries of the sea. Nice. He also talks about fiery spheres that rise above the sea and all of the encounters people have had with these spheres, citing books from as far back as 1500 AD, uh, 1067 AD, and even 261 BC. How did you forget that? Because it's like UFOs. I think fiery freaking spheres rising above the sea. But I think at one point when I was scrolling through my thing, I got, I don't remember what was going on, but I think we got got, distracted. (laughs) I think I got distracted or we had a different part of the conversation and I lost my spot and I was like, oh, that looks right. So I just kept going. Oh. The letter was disclosed to the public in May of 2003. It's on the CIA website, which you can find with a simple Google search. But I think it's really interesting that even though they released the letter to the public, the name of the recipient of the letter is still censored by the CIA. <gasps> oh. So. so wait, would that mean like the person is still alive or their family is like easily traceable or? Could be. Okay. Huh. Or that person might have been involved with something, like, very specific that's, like, classified. I don't know. Aliens. 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 It's but yeah, aliens. I, I, uh, I wanted to mention that. Um, so, yes. Where are we today, Rachel? Today, we are on Alcatraz Island. Oh, so, my God. <laughs> oh, my gosh. If that doesn't tell you what both of our stories are, then I don't know. It, it, it's pretty obvious, guys. <laughs> yeah, basically. Pr- pretty obvious. And actually, funny story, because since I'm doing the paranormal, the paranormal stuff is so frequent there, mm-hmm. it's also in my history. Ah, okay. <laughs> like, I didn't, mention, I didn't mention any of the paranormal really in the history, but I've used the same sources. Mm-hmm. So, the sources for history are history101.com, britannica.com, history.com, alcatrazhistory.com, nps.gov, and newworldencyclopedia.org. In case anyone can't tell, it's very windy today, so you can hear my wind chimes. (laughs) We love it. Okay. So, the name Alcatraz derives from the Spanish word alcatrazis. Um, Google's not the best at finding pronunciations. Mm-hmm. The name was given to the island in 1775 by 
Spanish explorer Juan Manuel de Ayala after the abundance of pelicans on the island. Hmm. So, of course, this was anglicized to Alcatraz because that just seemed to be the common thing to happen at the time. The earliest recorded owner of the island was Julian Workman in June of 1846. Uh, It was given to him by the Mexican governor Pio Pico in order to have a lighthouse built there. A little bit later on in that year, the island was then sold to John C. Fremont for a cool sum of $5,000 in the name of the U.S. government. I would love to buy an island for $5,000. Which today, in 2020, is $82,891.72. That's still really good for an island. That is super affordable for an island, and for an island of that size. Yeah. After the Mexican-American War, the U.S. fought to gain control of the island since it was purchased in their name. Then, the year following the California Gold Rush, the U.S. Army began studying the island and its suitability for the potential position of the coastal barriers in order to protect the San Francisco Bay. Oh, okay. In 1853, engineers began fortifying the island, and this continued until 1858. 200 military personnel arrived on the island by the end of that year in order to defend it in the surrounding areas. Then, in 1861, when the American Civil War broke out, 85 cannons were mounted around its perimeter for added protection. Dang, okay. Although, the cannons were not actually used in any battles. Oh. Instead, Alcatraz was used to imprison the West Coast's Federate sympathizers. Following the war, they deemed the current fortifications and guns obsolete. In an attempt to modernize, they intended to level the entire island and construct underground tunnels. However, this project was never completed. Instead, it was decided that the island would no longer be used as a form of coastal defense, but rather as a detention center. In 1867, a brick jailhouse was built, and the following year, Alcatraz was officially designated a long-term detention center for military prisoners. Unfortunately, among the first prisoners were the Hopi Native American men who refused to relinquish their children to the government-run Indian boarding schools, which sounds like a concentration camp, if that's the reason they were taken. Yeah. On March 21st, 1907, Alcatraz was designated as the Western U.S. Military Prison. Two years later, in 1909, they began the construction of what is now known as the main cell block. This remains the island's dominant feature since it is just a massive, hulking concrete building. (laughs) During this time, residents of San Francisco proceeded to complain about the starkness of the prison against the beautiful backdrop to the bay. It's too ugly. I like a nice, clean, like, natural landscape. Seascape. It's too, it's too clean. I like a more natural prison, you know. Maybe sprinkle some flowers. You could do, like, some, like, living architecture. I think that'd be really neat. Maybe a water feature. (laughs) The whole ocean's a water feature. (laughs) To which the prison guards replied by buying and planting plants. Several of the prisoners became trained in landscaping, and their sole job was to maintain the gardens. Then, in 1920, a baseball field was built, just for funsies. In August of 1934, the island became a federal prison, holding notable prisoners such as Al Capone, George Machine Gun Kelly, Robert Franklin Stroud, Jose Sierra, James Whitey Bulger, and Alan Carpice. I do want to mention um, Machine Gun Kelly. Not the one you're thinking of, folks. It is not. No, that was just one of the nicknames. Um, there were, of course, many, many escape tent attempts, but I didn't want to delve too far into mm-hmm. that <laughs> because before I texted you, I really wasn't sure what specifically your story was about. Right. Yeah. But what I can say is that no inmate successfully escaped. Mm, that's what my research came up that is what my research came up your research is incorrect oh i'm excited to learn this depends on your your definition of successfully escape alive 
Yes. Well, oh. so are we thinking alive and stayed escaped, or are we saying alive and... Alive and stayed escaped. Maybe. Then... <laughs> the answer is maybe. Maybe. Okay. <laughs> Alcatraz was closed on March 21st, 1963 by Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy because it was far more expensive to operate than other prisons. Mm. Six years later, on November 20th, 1969, a group of Native Americans from various tribes occupied the island. Uh, this occupation lasted for 19 months until June 11th of 1971, before it was forcibly ended by the U.S. government. Mm. Their attention was to gain Indian control over the island for the purpose of building a center for Native American studies, um, an American Indian spiritual center, an ecology center, and an American Indian museum. During their occupation, several buildings were damaged or destroyed by fires, and several were actually <laughs> destroyed by the government after the occupation had ended. In 1976, the island was listed on the National Register of Historic Places and was then declared a historic landmark in 1986. Then in 1993, the National Park Service published a plan titled the Alcatraz Development Concept and Environmental Assessment. This was to double what was accessible to the public so as to enjoy the natural beauty of, of the island. The natural concrete beauty. Right. Um, <laughs> and that is Alcatraz Island. Please don't visit right now because of COVID, but it is mm -hmm. a tourist destination. Yes. And your story that I am interesting to know who escaped because even my... My story doesn't mention anyone ever escaping okay so you ready for the most interesting escape mm, that you've mm. ever heard of it's so interesting and i knew that i needed to cover it um it is the alcatraz escape of 1962 mm -hmm. my sources are fbi.gov wikipedia uh, History.com, Britannica.com, CBSNews.com, BBC.com, and AlcatrazHistory.com. Woo! Oh, cool. We used one of the same sources. <laughs> mm -hmm. Before I go into the escape, I'm going to talk about the three men who escaped and the one who didn't. We'll start okay. with Frank Morris. He was born September 1st, 1926, a few days after my great-grandma, actually, Aww. in Washington, D.C., he was abandoned by his parents as a child, and they died when he was 11, meaning he was put in foster care. He committed his first crime at 13, and by his late teens, he had been arrested for crimes ranging from drug possession to armed robbery. He spent a lot of time in and out of jail, mainly getting the job of serving lunch to other prisoners. Mm -hmm. He was arrested later for grand larceny in Miami Beach, Florida, for stealing cars and armed robbery. Morris reportedly ranked in the top 2% of the general population at the time in intelligence, with his IQ being tested at around 133, which oh. I don't I don't know if that's super high. Average IQ is 100. Okay, okay. So this is fairly high, um, which makes sense. And it's most likely mentioned in a lot of the articles I found because he ends up being the ringleader of this escape for obvious reasons, you'll see. Yeah. He served time in Florida and Georgia, then escaped from the Louisiana State Penitentiary while serving 10 years for bank robbery. He wasn't captured until a year later when he was caught committing yet another burglary and sent to Alcatraz on January 20th, 1960. What a reason to be sent to a federal prison for escaping prison. <laughs> so... His crimes, according to the Associate Warden's record card at Alcatraz, list his crimes as the following. Juvenile mm. delinquency, two counts. Runaways, two counts. Breaking and entering, one count. Burglary, one count. Narcotics and armed robbery, one. Unlawful fight, man act, and robbery, one. One, 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 one. Yeah. John and Clarence Anglin are the other two men who escaped. The Anglin brothers, John, born May 20th, 1930, and Clarence, born May 11th, 1931, were born to seasonal farm workers who had a total of 13 children in Donaldsonville, Oof. Georgia. That's Oof. so many. But my great-grandma had 12. Common. Not all yeah. of them were hers. They were, like, um, part of another marriage, but... Yeah. But um, pretty common. Yeah. Pretty common, pretty common at the time. 
Yeah. In the early 40s, the family moved to Ruskin, Florida, because the truck farms and tomato fields provide a more reliable source of income. Hey, Connor! Huh? I'm still recording. Punk ass kid. <laughs> anyway, so, um... Clarence England was known to have a tattoo of Zona on his left wrist and one of Nita on his mm-hmm. upper right arm. I don't know what either one of them were for. They both worked really young as farmers and laborers, and Clarence was first caught breaking into a service station at just 14. In oh. the early 1950s, John and Clarence began robbing banks and other establishments as a team. They would actually choose a location that was closed to ensure that nobody was injured. Mm-hmm. And they claimed that the only time they ever used a weapon was during a bank heist, but it was a toy gun. It's like a water gun or a Nerf gun. I don't think they had like Nerf the ones... guns back in the, in the uh, 40s and Well, 50s. no, or like the ones with the, um, the, 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 what is it called? The sucker thingy. No, I think it was like, do you remember those little toy guns that had the things that you would load, um, and you would, um, uh, every time you would shoot it it would like pop and like fake uh, like smoke would come out and it would look like you're shooting a real gun no i guess i never had one of those oh they're they're kind of old oh in 1958 john clarence and their brother alfred robbed the bank of columbia in columbia alabama john and clarence both received 15 to 20 year sentences which they served at florida state prison Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary, and then Atlanta Penitentiary. After Mm -hmm. repeated attempts to escape from Atlanta Penitentiary, they were transferred to Alcatraz. John on October 24th, 1960, and John on January 10th, 1961. I will tell you what happened to Alfred later. Okay. Alan West, uh, born March 25th, 1929, was born in New York City. He was arrested over 20 times throughout his life. He was in prison for car theft in 1955, first uh, at Atlanta Penitentiary. And if you didn't notice pattern, um, I'm here to tell you that, yes, this is where they all met originally, Atlanta Penitentiary. Oh my gosh. He was moved to Florida State Prison, and after a failed escape, escape attempt there, he was transferred to Alcatraz in 1957. Mm-hmm. West was transferred to McNeil Island, Washington, when Alcatraz was deactivated in 1963, and later back to Atlanta Penitentiary. After serving his sentence and two additional sentences in Georgia and Florida, he was released in 1967, only to be arrested again in Florida the following year on charges of grand larceny. At Florida State Prison, he fatally stabbed another inmate on October in October of 1972, and what may have been a racially motivated incident, I couldn't find any more information about it. Okay. He was serving multiple sentences, including life imprisonment for the murder conviction, when he died um, in 1978. And you'll notice this is the only death I mention. Okay. Somehow, these four men were assigned cells adjacent to each other in December of 1961. And because they knew each other already and trusted one another... They began formulating an escape with Morris as the leader, of course. Of course. Because obviously he's the only one who had actually succeeded in escaping a prison before. But here's the issue. Um, mm-hmm. Like like you said, this is one of the most well-secured prisons. And yeah. it's literally on a fucking island. Very hard to get away from an island. Exactly. And, exactly. and the water is like very frigid. So like you're going to die of hypothermia before you reach land. Well... Over six months, the men plotted one of the best escapes I've ever heard of. Some of the things they did, like I said, it's some of it's genius. They began by widening the ventilation ducts under their sinks mm-hmm. using discarded saw blades found on the prison grounds. Which, like, how are you gonna just leave that shit laying around for prisoners? Because I don't think they'll pay attention. Sure. They also used metal spoons smuggled from the mess hall, and this is the part where I'm just blown away. They made, like, this DIY electric drill from the motor of a vacuum cleaner. Wow. I know. That's impressive. It really is. They also concealed the holes that they made with, uh, like, they made these sort of fake walls with cardboard and suitcases, and the noise of the, the work their work was covered by the noise of Morris's accordion that he was allowed to play during music hour. 
Very smart. Very smart. Very. I did not know that part. That's... Yeah. One, uh, once the holes were big enough to pass through, the men accessed the utility corridor, which was unguarded behind their cells, and climbed to the vacant top level of the cell block, where they set up a mm-hmm. workshop without anyone knowing. Okay. They collected over 50 raincoats, among other stolen or donated materials, and constructed life preservers based on a design one of them just happened upon in a magazine called Popular Mechanics. Just happened upon a life. Just happened upon it. Okay. They also constructed a 6 by 14 foot rubber raft, literally sewn by hand and sealed with the steam pipe's heat. They converted a concertina, concertina, which if you don't know what a concertina is, it's kind of like a tiny accordion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they converted a concertina into a tool to inflate the raft and constructed paddles out of scrap wood and stolen screws. They climbed. Nice. I know. And they climbed a, a ventilation shaft headed for the roof and removed this like fan grill in the way so they could make their escape. The thing it the thing that just like sends me is that the fact that in order to appear like they were sitting in their cells while working and then eventually escaping, they created these dummy heads made out of a sort of homemade paper mache like like mixture of soap, toothpaste, concrete dust, and toilet paper. Oh my gosh! Yeah, and they made them look more realistic uh, from with paint from the maintenance shop and hair from the barbershop floor. Yeah, and then they would pile up towels and clothing under the blankets in their bunks with the dummy heads on the pillows so it looked like they were sleeping. You should really look look them up, what they look like, because it's so funny. I am definitely going to. So, on the night of June 11th, 1962, once they had everything in place, the men escaped. Well, three of them. Morris and the Anglins, uh, Anglin brothers, climbed the ventilation shaft to the roof. The guards heard a loud crash as they mm-hmm. broke out of the shaft, but since they didn't hear anything else, they didn't investigate. The men descended 50 feet to the ground by sliding down a bakery smokestack at the end of the at the back of the hell, the cell house, and then climbed two 12-foot... the back foot, of the hell house. Hell house, yeah. And then <laughs> climbed two 12-foot barbed wire, wire perimeter fences. At the northeast shoreline near the power plant, there was a blind spot in the prison searchlights and gun towers, and I have no idea how they knew about this, but that's where they inflated the raft. They probably, like, ab- like just watched it, because it took them a while to actually collect, True, like, all they the- were doing all of that over six months, so I guess they could have figured yeah. it out. Um, investigators estimate that they boarded the raft around 10 p.m. and headed to Angel Island. Okay. West wasn't able to escape with the rest of them because the cement that they used to stop the crumbling around his vent had hardened, making the hole smaller and cementing the grill in place. And by the time he managed to remove the grill and widen the hole, the others had already left. Mm -hmm. So he just went back to his cell and went to sleep. (laughs) Smart. The escape wasn't discovered until the next morning, uh, June 12th, 1962, due to the dummy heads. At the time, the warden was on vacation, and he didn't believe they could have survived the waters and made it, made it to shore. Mm-hmm. Multiple military and law enforcement agencies conducted an extensive air, sea, and land search over the next 10 days. Two days after the escape, a Coast Guard cutter picked up a paddle floating 200 yards off the southern shore of Angel Island. The same day, at the same location, workers on another... I wrote board. I meant to write boat. I don't... <laughs> on another, another boat. <laughs> They're on board another boat. There you go. That's Maybe that's what it was. Uh, they found a wallet wrapped in plastic with names, addresses, and photos of the England's families and... Uh, England's friends and relatives. On June 21st, shreds of raincoat material believed to be the remnants of the raft were found on a beach not far from the Golden Gate Bridge. The next day, a prison boat picked up a deflated life jacket made from the same material 50 yards off Alcatraz Island. No okay. other physical evidence of what happened to the men was ever found, and according to the final FBI report, this the escapee's raft was never found. Um. The FBI officials were positive that the men had drowned, they said, because the personal effects found were the only thing the men had, they would have drowned before leaving them behind, which, nah, 
drowning sucks. <laughs> but when they searched for bodies, none of them were ever found. Mm. Yeah. And see, and that's the most that I know about it, is that they, um... There's six more they... pages, so... <laughs> what? <laughs> is that the <laughs> FBI couldn't find them, and they were for sure that they drowned? Yeah, no. There's so much more that I didn't even know. Um, during the investigation, Robert Chechi, a San Francisco police officer, said that at 1 a.m. on the morning of June 12th, he saw an illegal boat in the bay near Alcatraz. A few minutes later, the boat left heading under the Golden Gate Bridge, which led to speculation that the prisoners might have enlisted like outside, like somebody outside to pick them up by boat. But the FBI yeah. just dismissed it completely. Well, of course they did. According to FBI reports, a month after the escape, a Norwegian ship spotted a body floating in the ocean about 15 nautical miles from the Golden Gate Bridge, but they didn't retrieve the body or report the sighting until October. They just left it to be food for the fishes. I guess so. Uh, officials said that it was likely not the body uh, of any of the men because apparently bodies wouldn't typically float a month after death in the ocean, but... Instead, they said it was probably a man who had jumped from the Golden Gate Bridge five days earlier. Hmm. Yeah. Human bones were located eight months after the escape, having washed up on the shore just to the north of the Golden Gate Bridge at Point Reyes, where the Norwegian ship spotted the body. The pathology report indicated that they had belonged to a man of Morris's age and height, but they've since been tested against a relative's DNA, and it wasn't a match. Okay. They... What did they name it? They um, gave this person, whoever the bones belonged to, they gave them the name of um, John Bones Doe. John Bones Doe. Yes. Mm. <laughs> cool name there, yeah. John Bones Doe. FBI investigators agree that it was theoretically possible for the men to reach Angel Island, but they still think they drowned. Also, West, the man left behind, cooperated with the investigation, and he told police that after some rest, the men would had planned to re-enter the bay on the opposite side of the island and swim through the so-called Raccoon Straits on their way to Marin County, where they would steal a car and burglarize a clothing store before going their separate ways. Mm -hmm. But the FBI said there were no reports of either uh, around the time that they might have made it to the island. But is it possible that they could have changed their plans when they realized that their buddy wasn't with them? Potentially. Um, but it should also be noticed that uh, noted that December of 1962, another prisoner successfully swam a distance of 2.7 nautical mile, miles from Alcatraz to Fort Point at the southern end of the Golden Gate Bridge, and he was found there by teenagers suffering from hypothermia and exhaustion, and after being treated at the hospital, he was returned to the island. But also, mm -hmm. this is in December, and yeah. they escaped in June, and they had a raft. True. So. True. It's the only proven case of an Alcatraz inmate, his name was John Paul Scott, reaching the shore by swimming. And like I said, the conditions were a lot worse for him. And Than for the three, Oh, he yeah. did have a raft, but it was way, it was far inferior to the raft constructed by the three men. And, um, or four men, technically. West helped them, too. So the likelihood that they survived became a lot more believable after that. Not to mention that a lot of athletes swim the same route as that prisoner as part of one of two annual triathlon events. Oh. So, like, it's completely possible. Well, that's cool, yeah. yeah. So that is completely possible, just not in December. <laughs> right. <laughs> the FBI closed their file in 1979 after 17-year investigation. Their official finding was that the prisoners most likely drowned. However, the FBI did hand over the investigation to the U.S. Marshal Service, who have not closed theirs. Oh. Yes. Deputy Marshal Dyke told NPR in 2009, there's an active warrant and the Marshal Service doesn't give up looking for people. He also pointed out that the bodies of two out of every three people who go missing in the San Francisco Bay are eventually recovered. Mm-hmm. And theirs never were. Yeah, and they are literally three, so they would have been two of them <laughs> At least two so. of them. <laughs> the warrant for the missing men will expire between the years of 2026 and 2030, when the age of each of the three missing men will be 99 and 100 years old. So that'll mean there's less of a chance that they're alive at, at that point. Yeah. Since the escape of Morris and the Anglin brothers, there have actually been a lot of sightings of them reported, and so many leads as to where th their whereabouts were submitted... A day after the escape, a man claiming to be John Anglin called a lawyer to arrange a meeting with the U.S. Marshal's office, 
And when the lawyer refused, the caller hung up. And the FBI just dismissed this as a prank. I mean, yes, but also, how many people are calling lawyers for pranks? Right. Especially some random one. Yeah. In January 1965, the FBI investigated a rumor that Clarence was living in Brazil, and it was considered so significant that agents literally went to South America to find him. A male tipster called the FBI in 1967, claiming to have been at school with Morris, and said he bumped into him in Maryland, and described him as having a small beard and a mustache, but refused to give further details. He had a small beard and a mustache. Yeah. Family members of the Anglin brothers occasionally received many unsigned postcards and messages over the years. Once a card came signed Jerry and another Jerry and Joe. The family- Jerry and Joe. Yeah. The family also produced a Christmas card they received in 1962 saying, To Mother, from John, Merry Christmas. Another of the England brothers' 11 siblings, Robert, said sometimes the phone would ring and all that could be heard was breathing on the other end. Creepy. Yeah. Ew. He said he supposed that could have been pranks, but maybe it was his brother's. The mother of the England brothers received flowers anonymously every Mother's Day until her death in 1973, and two... Um. Very tall, unusual women in heavy makeup were reported to have attended her funeral before disappearing. Completely normal. Yeah. There were a few reports in the mid to late 60s and into the 70s, all in Florida or Georgia for them. Robert also said that when their father died in 1989, two strangers in beards showed up at the funeral home, stood in front of the casket, looking at the body for a few minutes, cried, and then left. Also fairly common... Yeah, I guess there's always times where, like, you know people, or your parents know people that you don't know, and they just show up, and you're like, oh, who's that person? Yeah. Uh, In 1989, a woman who only identified herself as Kathy called the Unsolved Mysteries tip line to report that she recognized a photo of Clarence Englin as a man who lived on a farm near Mariana, Florida. The brothers were also linked to the area by a woman who recognized a photo of Clarence, and said he lived in the same area as Kathy did. Oh. She correctly identified his eye color, height, and other physical features. I'm guessing this means his tattoos. Uh, another mean. witness identified a sketch uh, of Frank Morris saying it bore a striking resemblance to a man she'd seen in the area. In the early 2000s, according to New York Times author Frank M. Ahern, the U.S. Marshals received a tip line that one of the England brothers was in Brazil. They went down there and got a confirmation from a bartender that one of them was there, but never found him. So they're just going back and forth between Brazil and Florida? Sounds like it. Yeah. Deputy U.S. uh, Marshal Michael Dyke told NPR in 2009 that he's still receiving leads on a regular basis. Did I already say that? You might have. I don't know. It was repeated a lot in different um, areas different and different sources, sources and yeah. stuff, so it's probably in here like three times. I don't know. Cool, 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 cool. Thanks, NPR. Yeah. In 1993, former Alcatraz inmate named Thomas Kent told the TV show America's Most Wanted that he had helped plan the escape and claimed to have provided significant new leads to investigators. He said that Clarence England's girlfriend had actually agreed to meet the men on shore and drive them down to Mexico. He also Mm -hmm. said he declined to participate in the escape because he couldn't swim, but investigators were very skeptical of this account because he had been paid $2,000 for the interview. Ha! Yeah. 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 A man named John Leroy Kelly confessed to his nurse and a priest on his deathbed that in 1993, he and his partner picked up the men from the bay in a boat and transported them to Seattle, Washington and killed them to get the $40,000 their families had apparently collected for them. The location Kelly said they were buried was dug up, but failed to turn up any bodies. So, mm-hmm. on a 2003 episode of, Myth, ugh, of Mythbusters on the Discovery Channel, they tested the likelihood of an escape aboard a raft constructed with the same materials and tools and determined that it was possible but theories that instead of theorized that instead of Angel Island being their destination, that they used the tides to take them to a different location. The Mythbusters team successfully made it across the bay to Marin Headlands, and as for the debris, they theorized that the men released some debris to throw off the investigators. And it worked. 
Oh, my package is here, I think. Yeah, I ordered stuff when I was drunk off Amazon. <laughs> a 2014 study of the ocean currents by scientists at Def Delft University and the research institute Delterres indicates that if the prisoners left Alcatraz at 11.30 p.m. on June 11th, they could have made it to Horseshoe Bay, just north of the Golden Gate Bridge, and that any debris uh, released into the bay would have floated in the direction of Angel Island, consistent with the paddle and the belongings of the prisoners were actually found. So, mm -hmm. uh, when the case was transferred from the FBI to the U.S. Marshals, this is the part. Oh my God! It's mm, mm. All of the files were examined in detail on a 2011 documentary titled Vanished from Alcatraz on the National Geographic Channel. In it, that deputy uh, U.S. Marshal discovered that, discovered in the files that even though, even though the official yeah. FBI reports say the men's raft was never recovered and there were no car thefts reported, a raft was discovered on Angel Island June 12th, 1962, the day after the escape. Ooh, yeah. Also, there were footprints leading away from the raft, and there was a 1955 blue Chevrolet that had been reported stolen in Marin County the day after the escape, which the Humboldt Times and the San Francisco Examiner actually reported at the time, matching that story. And at 11.30 a.m. on June 12th, a motorist in Stockton, California, which is 80 miles east of San Francisco, reported being forced off the road by three men in a blue, a blue Chevrolet. So FBI is doing a cover-up for some reason. That is one of the theories, and I'll get into it in a bit, but on top of that, there were boats docked on the opposite side of Angel Island, so the inmates could have gained access to them and gotten to the mainland, so that story of that cop who saw an illegal boat near the Golden Gate Bridge could be completely yeah. accurate. Yeah. This has led to speculation that there was a cover-up of the evidence in order to save Alcatraz's reputation as an es as escape-proof or try to make the men more relaxed if they did survive so they would slip up. Okay. The same year of the escape, uh, an 89-year-old man named Bud Morris, claiming to be the cousin of Frank Morris, claimed that on eight or nine occasions prior to the escape, he delivered envelopes of cash to Alcatraz guards as bribes. He also claimed to have met his cousin face-to-face -face in San Diego Park shortly after the escape, which his daughter, who was eight or nine at the time, said she was present for. Hmm. And that she remembers meeting dad's friend Frank, but had no idea about the escape. But his relation to Morris has never been proven. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, in 2012, the Anglin's two sisters, Marie and Merle, how fun is that for a name, Merle? For a girl. Like yeah, that's, that's fun. And uh, and two of the England's nephews, David and Kenneth, publicly shared their belief that the other brother, Alfred, who was supposedly electrocuted trying to escape from Kilby Prison in Montgomery, Alabama in 1964, was actually beaten to death by the guards because he wouldn't help investigators locate his brothers. But during another documentary, the family gave permission to have his body exhumed, and there was no significant trauma to his body, suggesting it was probably just electrocution. But Alfred's DNA was compared with a sample from John Bones Doe, and it was also not a match. So oh. it didn't belong to either of the Anglin brothers either. Okay. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Other circumstantial evidence included the... Deathbed confession of Robert Anglin, one of the Anglin brothers, brothers, who apparently told family members on his deathbed that in 2010 he had been in contact with John and Clarence from 1963 to 1987 when they lost contact. Some family members who haven't heard anything from the brothers since he lost contact in 87 said they're traveling to Brazil to search for them. Mm. But there okay. was some caution against it because the Alcatraz escape remains an open Interpol case, so yeah, it was there was a potential that they might have got got arrested for um, yeah. trying to interfere somehow. Yeah. In 2018, the FBI confirmed the existence of a letter allegedly written by John Anglin, and um, blah, they confirmed. A letter allegedly written by John Anglin had compelled them to reopen investigation into the case. 
The author of the letter, which was received by the San Francisco Police Department in 2013, alleges that Frank Morris died in 2008 and was buried in Alexandria under a different name, and that Clarence Anglin died in 2011. The letter says that he, John Anglin, supposedly, has cancer and wants to strike a deal with the FBI, offering to be locked up again for a year in exchange for medical care. They somehow analyzed this letter and said there was no conclusive link to John Anglin. Okay. I don't know if they used handwriting stuff. I don't know. There was, I couldn't find anything on how they, like... I mean, more than likely, it was probably handwriting analysis. Probably. On an episode of the series Mission Declassified in 2019, investigative journalist Christoph Putzel investigated the escape... Like all the others, they reenacted the escape to see if it was possible for them to escape the way they did, which it was. He combed through hundreds of documents and discovered various reports mentioning a Chevy of the same description as earlier, making its way across the country over a couple of months after the escape, with three men matching Morris and the Anglins' description in Indiana, Ohio, and South Carolina. And ah. three months after the initial escape, three men matching the description of Morris and the Anglin brothers were trying to acquire a hideout in the woods. Huh. Yeah. Huh. So Putzel traveled to Brazil um, where he discovered that there was a farm that was basically called the Farm of the Americans and learned that the residents uh, recalled two American men renting the farm and living there from 1965 to the 1970s and discovered the 1975 photograph with him in it. In January 2020, or, well, with men in it, it wasn't, like, a super clear image, because it was, like, mm -hmm. the 70s. But, um... like the 70s. <laughs> in January 2020, Rothko, an Irish creative agency, teamed up with AI specialists uh, at Identif, I don't know, to analyze the alleged photo of the Anglin brothers in Brazil using facial recognition techniques, a convolutional neural network was trained on past images of the brothers and confirmed with high confidence that the identities of the men in the photo were John and Clarence Anglin. So, there's that. Mm -hmm. um, and while nobody knows for sure what actually happened with the men, if they actually ever survived, nothing was ever proven, there may be a cover-up, who knows, but there were, there have been several books and um, a movie that was Escape from Alcatraz in 1979, starring Clint Eastwood as Frank Morris. And people continue to be fascinated by this case because, like, there's so much. Because because it's pretty much unsolved. It's like, yeah. sh it's like Schrodinger's cat. It's like they're both dead, but they're also alive. Right. Like, they're dead, but they're alive, but they're... Mm. They're dead, but they're alive. But they could be dead because it's been a while, but they could be alive. Yeah, they could have definitely lived, but they're probably dead now. But, like, yeah. You know? Yeah. Wow. Wow. Well, on that note, yeah. I'm going to move on to my story. Alrighty. Um, so, f Ghosts of Alcatraz. My sources are graylineofsanfrancisco.com, legendsofamerica.com, ghosts.fandom.com, ghosts.hauntedhouses.com, history101.com and season 8 episode 8 of ghost adventures i forgot they went there how did i forget that i have no idea how you forgot that so alcatraz prison is considered one of the most haunted places in the country if not the world from the very beginning uh native americans of the area believed that the island was haunted by evil spirits in fact, as a punishment for the violations of tribal laws, Native Americans would sometimes be isolated for a brief period of time to the island, or even banished. Really? Really. I have no idea. Yeah. Like, I thought it was really weird that there weren't, like, any Native Americans on the island, because islands tend to be pretty good for growing stuff. But if it was considered haunted... It would make sense. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, during its stint as a federal penitentiary, many of the guards reported many odd occurrences, including hearing the sounds of sobbing or moaning, terrible smells, and reports of something they dubbed the thing, which was an entity that was said to appear with glowing red eyes. Okay, look, the first couple I was like, yeah, that can just be uh, chalked up that to could be like, anything, yeah. uh, a prison, you know, people being 
like sad that they're in prison <laughs> and they smell bad. Yeah. But the glowing, yeah, I can't. That last one. <laughs> that they're sad in prison sad, and smell bad. Sad in prison and smell bad. I mean. Oh. Uh. Uh, okay, something else that I did forget to mention in the um, history, many of the guards and their families also lived on the island oh. during the penitentiary's brief life. I get that one and makes I bring sense. This, yeah, I bring it up because reportedly many of the families would see phantom soldiers and prisoners. Oh. Like just walking around doing the normal everyday stuff and there, lo and behold, a ghost that just disappears in front of them. Even Warden Johnson, who was the skeptic of skeptics, you know, way back, mm-hmm. encountered the sounds of a woman sobbing while he was leading a tour through the prison. The mm-hmm. sobs, who were also heard by his tour guests, seemed to be coming from inside the walls. Oh, no! When it finally stopped, it seemed as if an icy wind whipped its way through the group. The, that the wind, I would not like. It's in the walls. It's in the walls. <gasps> Sorry, I just thought of a story that I want to cover. Continue. <laughs> to the dismay of Warden Johnson, even his house seemed to show unseen guests as well. During one Christmas party, several guards told stories of a man who suddenly appeared before them wearing a gray suit, brimmed hat, and sporting mutton chop sideburns. As the men stared at the man, who literally just appeared in front of them, the room got frigid and the wooden burning stove's flame suddenly extinguished itself. Oh. Someone's doing dishes very loudly. (laughs) Then, just as suddenly as the figure appeared, it disappeared. Probably one of the weirder apparitions, however, seems to be the sudden appearing and disappearing of the long-gone lighthouse on foggy nights. Like, the lighthouse is still there, it's just non-operational. So, it seems whatever spirit that still resides there wants to make sure that ships can pass safely into the bay. Hmm. Other guards could hear phantom gunshots and cannon blasts accompanied by screams so realistic that seasoned guards were sent out for fear that the prisoners had escaped and obtained weapons. Ooh. Of course, upon inspection, nothing was there. Many would often report the smell of smoke from a deserted laundry room. When investigated, black smoke would in fact be filling the room, so thick that no one could stand to be in there for more than a few seconds. Then suddenly the smoke would disappear mere minutes later and the room would be completely smoke free. What? How? Magic! Magic. What seems to be the most haunted part of Alcatraz, however, is the D block. While it was built along with the rest of the prison, it became known as the treatment unit and was comprised of nearly 42 cells. These all have various degrees of restrictions. For this section of the jail, there was absolutely no contact with the general population outside of the jailhouse. Um, They were not allowed to go into the mess hall to eat. They were only allowed one visit to the recreation yard per week, two showers per week, and all meals were served to them in their cells. Something else, these cells were always extremely cold. In fact, one guard was even known to turn on the AC in order to make it even colder for the inmates, just to torture them. Five of the cells on D-Block were known as strip cells, but were often referred to as the hole. These were reserved for the more serious offenders of prison rules. They were bottom-tier, coldest place in the prison, contained only a toilet, sink, and a low-wattage bulb that could be turned off at any time by the guards. During the day, the prisoners' mattresses were taken away, and they were given no time in the yard, no showers, or any reading materials. They were forced to suffer in silence and boredom, but at least they had a few amenities. Not like those who would be confined to the last strip cell, known as the... This is not PC. Known as the Oriental. This was the most severe punishment that the prison could assign any inmate. In this cell, they would suffer complete deprivation of all peripheral senses. There was no sink, no toilet, only a hole in the ground for the waste, and only at night were they allowed just a mattress. Oh my god. Many guards reported seeing a man dressed in 1800s prison attire walking the hallway of the hole. He became such a frequent sight that the guards would often joke about his existence. On one occasion, while an inmate was locked in the hole, 
He began screaming that he could see glowing eyes in the cell with him. Due to their natural thought that this was just a joke, no one's down there with the guy, the guards ignored the prisoner's cries of being attacked. And... I feel like some there had to have been a point where they were like, okay, yeah, maybe this guy is seeing something, but they still don't get up to check. Well, of course. Like, really, his screaming continued for most of the night before they were replaced with an eerie silence. Oh, no. The following morning, upon investigation, they found that the prisoner died in the cell with hand marks around his neck <gasps> and a terrified expression on his face. What the fuck? The autopsy revealed that this was not done by the inmate himself. There are some theories that perhaps this was done by a guard who had had just enough of the guy's screaming. Mm -hmm. And there was an investigation done into this, but nothing came of it. Damn. To make this even weirder, a few days after the incident, the guards had lined up the prisoners for a daily count, and there was one too many convicts in line. (gasps) At the end of the row was the recently strangled prisoner. Oh my god. Everyone, guards and prisoners alike, looked on in stunned silence as the apparition of the man slowly disappeared. There are frequent cold spots as well as sudden intense feelings. Between cells 12 and 14D seem to be the most active cells in the block. Cell 14 is often reported to be about 20 degrees colder than the other cells. 20 degrees is a lot. That's a lot. It's crazy. Uh, Psychics who have visited the cells have felt emotionally charged when getting to the corners of these cells where the prisoners would apparently crouch and suffer. So Mm -hmm. another spooky spot is cell block C. This is where many people believe the utility passageway where convict uh, Bernard Coy, Joseph Kretzer, and Marvie Hubbard were killed during their escape attempt in 1946. Oh, yeah. They believe this something... is apparently haunted. Yeah, that was something I forgot to mention in my story, is that anyone who was attempting to escape was either brought back or shot instantly. Shot. Yes. Yeah. Loud clinging is often heard from the area. However, when the doors open, it tends to stop. Only to resume again when the door closes. What? I know, right? Others claim to see disembodied figures and hear disembodied voices at the side of the riot that left three prisoners dead. Dang. The laundry room here also apparently holds an unseen presence. A CBS News team brought in a psychic named Sylvia Brown and an ex-convict named Leon Thompson for an investigation. In this area, Sylvia immediately encountered the presence of a tall man with a bald head and small, beady eyes. Okay. Leon Thompson then leaned in and told her that he remembered the guy, called him Butcher. Oh. He had been a hitman with Murder Incorporated, which, side note, sounds like a fantastic book series, Murder Incorporated. Yeah. And that needs to be written. <laughs> Um, so this guy's real name was A.B. Maldowitz, and apparently another prisoner had killed him there in the laundry room. Oh. So, cell block B housed a famous prisoner that we all have a love-hate relationship with, Mm. Al Capone. Mm -hmm. Capone was bougie. He could not risk spending one hour of his free time in the prison yard with the rest of the prisoners, because why not? Ew. Yeah. All jokes all jokes aside, though, he really couldn't. Some of them in-house there literally would have killed him the second he stepped <laughs> yeah. out. So, instead, he spent his time in the shower room playing away on his banjo. This banjo playing can actually still be heard today, and although he did not die there, Capone escaped a death fate when he lost his mind and was sent to the rest of the life in hospital care. Hmm. Yeah. So now we're going to move on to ghost adventures because that's how I space this out, all the information and then ghost adventures. <laughs> I was telling my mom how um, I always confuse the Birdman of Alcatraz with Al Capone for some reason. Like I, yeah. I always, for some reason I always think that Al Capone became the Birdman. Nope. And I know that's wrong, but I don't know why my brain did that. Trying to mesh all the stories together. Probably. Probably. In the episode of Ghost Adventures, um, during the first interview they conducted with a man named Jeff, 
Zach feels like the wall behind him was moving. And this is not actually an unknown occurrence in the specific cell that they were in, which, by the way, was 13D Mm. in the D block, which, if you remember, is what I said was one of the haunted cells. Many would normally attribute this feeling of the wall moving behind Zach to, you know, sea legs, because they had just gotten off of boat and... Yeah. Either but that or, the, like, claustrophobia. Or, or that. But the guy told him that he felt it was the energy within the cell. Okay. So, in the way they set up the episode, we're going to keep coming back to a lot of the things that this guy Jeff says. Mm-hmm. In another interview with uh, Sharon and Anne Long, who were uh, paranormal investigators, the two women recalled an experience that they had in cell 14D, When Anne walked into the cell, uh, she felt that she was being engulfed in a black shadow. She couldn't breathe and found herself getting very dizzy. She got out immediately. I would too, because I don't like feeling dizzy. I don't even think I'd go into one of those cells. I I don't think I could do it. Nah, I would. I definitely would. Um, As they reveal later on, Jeff had the same thing happen to him on an investigation. Nice, Jeff. Jeff. Jeff, my man. Annalise Bastiani, another paranormal investigator, tells Zach the story of the prisoner placed in the cell and seeing the figure with the red eyes, blah, 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 blah. Zach, of course, hears red eyes for the second time because Jeff had said it before. Mm -hmm. And he instantaneously was like, demon. Yeah. Demon. Of course. Demon. His logic was, because you think glowing red eyes, you think demon. And... Naturally. Naturally. <laughs> That's its own segment. <laughs> so during the investigation, the team really goes all out so that there is undeniable evidence that they've not staged anything. Mm. They have two park rangers with them off camera the entire night because they can't show their faces. Right. They show Zach turning off the lights to the, I believe it's the D block. Mm. And that's like the only, that's the only cell block that they can turn the lights off on. Okay. And then they show Jay taking a brand new roll of film out of the box and placing it into his camera. During a spirit box session, there was a loud bang, as Zach called it, but it really sounded like a knocking from the cell beside them. Ooh. And this was, they were in cell 13, back in the cell where Zach felt everything moving. Yeah. They go to investigate, but find no one is there. As Nick was leaving the cell, he hits a cold spot and noticeably reacts. What's cool is that he was holding uh, his voice recorder when this happened, and it was recording, Mm -hmm. and it picked up a voice saying, come back. No. The poor spirit. It just wanted some company. Come back. I want a a friend. I want a friend. Or, as Zach said, is the spirit saying this because it's feeding off Nick's energy? I don't know. You sent him there. Also true. Uh, also true. Yeah. Another great EVP bit that EVP that they caught is when they were leaving the infirmary and got to the end of a hall. A deep man's voice said, "I'm sorry. Get naked." Oh. <laughs> get naked. On the okay. spirit box. Actually, like, let me correct myself. That was from the spirit box. That was not an EVP. <laughs> oh my god, that's hilarious. <laughs> and. As they are freaking out, going, no, 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 Zach then sees two glowing red eyes showing through the slit in one of the cell doors. No. So, you know, the logical thing to do here is Zach sticks his arms through the slit and then proceeds to have a spirit box session. Of course he does. Of course he does. He asks, is there anything I can do for you? The spirit box then says, he's here. Oh. Oh. And then poor Aaron. Aaron gets sucked into everything Zach does. He's actually in the cell that Zach is doing. Oh my that. god. And he's using the ovulus reader. Uh-huh. He got two words on the ovulus at this exact moment saying doctor and opening. Oh. Which is a fun coincidence because they are still technically in the hospital portion. Oh, okay. Zach then asks how many different spirits are communicating with us right now. To which something replies, dear God, (gasps) then screams in pain. Oh my God. This is a point where they're getting a lot of good stuff. So, 
Zach asks, why can't you leave the island? And the ovulus shows the word mist. Mist? Mist, like M-I-S-T. Oh. At this exact time, a camera that is stationed down the hall and pointing towards them captures a mist-like ball of energy disappearing into a wall. Then Aaron gets the word touch shown on the ovulus and a cold breeze passes between him and one of the park rangers that's with them and they verified. Oh yeah, I felt that. At this point, it's like a switch flipped. There's no more activity after that cold breeze went past Aaron. The spirits apparently drain Zack of all of his energy during that entire hot spot of activity Mm -hmm. because Zack then had to brace himself against a wall to get to gather himself and get all of his energy back. Jeez. So during this time, he sends Billy and Jay, which are the two tech two tech guys, mm. down to the D-block to investigate themselves. Of Billy, course. unsure of, of, course, of course, unsure of which cell was the most active, just starts walking into every single one of them. Oh, yeah, that's what I would yep. do. It's like, ah, <laughs> let's just try them all. <laughs> And nothing felt off for him until he reached cell 14. Mm-hmm. His exact words were, 14 feels the worst. Okay. Being true investigators, Billy then sits down in cell 14 in a speechless daze as Jay's camera picks up a weird, another weird mist, disappearing into Billy's hand right after Billy says, it's hard to breathe. Oh. Then as they are about to leave, they decided to step in cell 13 one more time. And this one feels worse to Jay. Great. At this point, Billy then sees a black mist behind Jay in the corner of the cell, to which Jay turns around and is like, yeah, I see it too. Not his his exact words, but that's how I imagine it going down. Like, yep, that's there. Jay then uses the infrared camera to try and capture this entity that they're both seeing. Unfortunately, it didn't it didn't catch anything. Dang. And unfortunately, a lot of the film pictures that they took throughout the night also didn't show anything ultimately. That's so weird. It's so weird. It's so weird cuz you think film you're actually going to catch stuff on film. Right. But then after he after Jay uses the infrared camera to try to take a picture, suddenly he felt the same dizziness that everyone felt stepping into cells 13 and 14. And then, in the corner, he sees two red dots, which he could only describe as two eyes. No! I don't like that. I don't like that. And that is the story of the Ghost of Alcatraz, and I wish that there were so much more, but also, I tried to keep it a little short. Because mine was so long, yeah. Because yours was so long, yeah. <laughs> that, that's some crazy shit. I'm going to have to go watch that episode. It was a really interesting episode. I'll watch it that. You really watch interesting. the Tiger King one. Yeah, we'll do that, we'll do that. Okay. Um, I actually remembered while you were telling your story where I first heard of Alcatraz. Where? Charmed. It was on Charmed? Yes, because there was an episode where Phoebe, um, she was supposed to be doing something but in, at home, but instead her friend, I believe Mary, I don't know, calls her and is like, hey, we're going to go on this like haunted ghost tour at Alcatraz. Do you want to come? And she's like, oh yeah. So she goes <laughs> and she actually encounters a ghost there and it's none of the like real ones. But yeah. it was it was still really interesting. I forgot that. I don't know. You probably don't watch so it at least weird. once a year like I do. That is true. I literally just watched it for the first time last year. Okay. Alrighty, so you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Myths and Misfortunes. Or Twitter at Myths Misfortune, or you can search for us using our full name, Myths and Misfortunes. We do pop up. You can also send us an email to mythsandmisfortunes at gmail.com and check out our website, mythsandmisfortunes.com. Our theme music was composed by McKean Fulbright and our art was created by Heather Marie Atkins. Their websites can be found in the description below. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on iTunes. It would be a big help. Um... Good reviews only, please. <laughs> we, we would... Oh. <laughs> 
We would definitely prefer only good uh, reviews. Thanks so much for listening. Yes, thank even you. Even if you didn't like it. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.